Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 160. supposed to have Joe Matt from The Wander on the show this week, but instead we'll be interviewing Michael Voris of Church Militant again. I think you'll like it. As you know, I don't like asking for your financial support. I always want a win-win situation whenever possible. Well, I've got a way for you to help this apostolate without you having to do anything you're not already doing. Everybody shops on Amazon. I've developed an affiliate relationship with Amazon. When you visit cantankerouscatholic.com and click on the episodes page, blog page, or about the show page, on the right-hand side of the page you'll see Amazon ads for Catholic books and merchandise. There's no price difference from Amazon's site, but if you click on something you're interested in and buy it, Amazon will pay me a small commission just for you clicking on that ad. It doesn't stop there either. Anytime you're on Amazon and find things you want to buy, send me the link to the items and I'll send you another link to click when you're ready to buy. You won't pay a dime more for the item, but Amazon will pay me a commission. That way you can help to financially support this apostolate just by doing what you were going to do anyway. Remember, Visit the episodes, blog, and about the show pages to find Catholic books and merchandise, and send me links to other things you want to buy on Amazon, and I'll send you the links that will pay this apostolate a small commission. And I thank you in advance for your support. In this episode, Michael Voris graciously gave me some time out of his busy schedule to talk about a bevy of topics. I greatly appreciate the time I had with him. It's easier to set your head on fire and put it out with an ice pick than to schedule Michael for an interview. 
I consider myself very well informed and virtually shockproof. After 30 years of evangelization and apologetics, I've heard it all. I didn't think I could be shocked by anything. I was wrong. When Michael told me that a bishop said there's no such thing as a deposit of faith, I was floored. I didn't know what to say. Needless to say, this interview with Michael Vorce was very enlightening. I think you'll agree. Let's listen. Hey, Michael, we're glad to have you back on the Cantankerous Catholic. How are you doing? Doing very well, Mr. Cantankerous. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Michael, let's, we've got very limited time today, so let's dive right in. Uh, St. Michael Media hosted the Enough is Enough prayer rally in Baltimore this past November across the street from the bishop's annual meeting. What did you hope to accomplish there? Well, there's a number of things. Be, uh, I, I guess I'll go to the most obvious first. Uh, when the city of Baltimore, unlike three years earlier this year, stepped in and tried to violate our First, first Amendment right to free speech and assembly, uh, <clears throat> the first thing we wanted to accomplish after that had happened, because uh, they canceled the rally. We had it set up, everything was done, and then the city stepped in and canceled it. That happened the first weekend of August, or for Friday, I believe it was August 5th, or August 6th. And then we spent all of August, all of September, all of October into the early part of November uh, trying to lock down our First Amendment rights, which we did both in the federal district court level as well as the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court. We were kind of hoping at that point that the city of Baltimore would actually appeal those two losses of theirs to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we could like put a big headline out, church militant wins at U.S. Supreme Court. But anyway, um, but in the, in the large, what we were trying to, so obviously just secure our rights and, and, you know, sort of be an example that you've got to fight back against this, uh, you know, the, this whole woke garbage stuff going on wherever you happen to find it. Uh, and what they did was so egregious. I mean, it was just a question of going through the motion. So we filed suit. Part of the suit was to get that preliminary injunction, which we secured twice. And, uh, and now the lawsuit itself obviously has to continue. And, uh, so that, that's, that's where that is. <laughs> on the large, on the bishops, from the bishop, uh, uh, angle that we were, uh, doing is, uh, you know, these men need to be called out and they need to be, um, uh, it needs to be emphasized, you know, to them by victims and people who have, uh, victims, so to speak, in their, area like we do. Some of the victims aren't, you know, they don't want to stand up on stage and talk to, you know, 1,500 people and a few thousand people on a live stream and all of that. Completely understandable. But, you know, that the bishops are so dismissive of all of this. And you're like, oh, this happened decades and decades ago. No, it did not happen decades and decades <laughs> ago. It started decades and decades ago. And on various levels, depending on which bucket or silo you may be looking at at any given moment, it's still going on. The question is not sexual abuse of minors. The question is homosexual clergy, some of whom abuse minors, ghastly as it is, others who harass seminarians, others who come on to young adults in their parishes. I mean, it's, that's the thing. This is like a multifaceted front some of which is minors, but until you get rid of the underlying problem, which is the uh, acceptance by bishops of homosexuality in their seminaries, in their clergy, even among their own ranks, the episcopate, 
You can't just pretend, oh, look, we've done this nice job fixing up, uh, you know, fixing up child sex abuse. First of all, there's no way for us to know that. I will tell you that we have been contacted by numerous people who say in various dioceses, and I believe it's the USCCB has some, if you've been abused, hotline, some 800 number. All of these people tell us they don't get callbacks. They call, there is a line set up, and they just don't get the callbacks. Uh, so I don't even know that you, you know, uh, Bill Donahue from the Catholic League is, you know, pounding that war drum and going crazy because he's written a book and he wants to sell you mean a sex that abuse crisis in New York. Yep, that's him. Million dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> Pays himself a million bucks to issue a few press releases a year. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm going to send in an application to work at the Catholic League. That's pretty cool. It's a good job. <laughs> we need to figure out how he's raising money. At least we do some good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he's got a lot of people who are, you know, they, they, they're not seriously into the game. They have a lot of money. He's been. He didn't start the Catholic League. He's kind of the inheritor of it. The priest who started it did a tremendous job of what it was doing. But as usual, it fell into the world of Catholic Inc. They figured out that they're going to find some way to make, uh, you know, some way to make money out of the deal, and you know, you know, you know, put the bishop's ring in his back pocket and then kiss his ring. They figured out a way to do all of this where they can just make a fortune on it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's disgraceful. But his assertion that the sex abuse crisis is over, he's speaking specifically about minors, there's not really a way to know that. There's no, not, there's that's not. not something that's going to come evident in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. A young boy, I mean, it, look, it's horrible if it happens to a, a, a girl or a boy, obviously. But uh, it, it seems to be, it seems to bear out that when a male child or teenager is raped by a man, that causes an even deeper level of psychological issues that the guy simply doesn't want to deal with. It goes with, if he ever becomes public about it, it's always decades and decades down the road. I've interviewed a couple of those people myself, and yeah, it's been, you know, we've got an interview actually going up Wednesday with such a victim. And, uh, you know, it's the first time he's come public on it. And he's uh, just about my age. I believe he's right around 60. I interviewed another man who, uh, uh, same thing. He revealed it uh, uh, 40 years after the fact uh, to the diocese uh, with his wife in the room, and she had never heard it at all. So he revealed it to the church and to her for the very first time 40 years after the abuse. So, first of all, we have no idea if this is going on or not. Uh, if you're going to just count numbers, count heads like Bill Donahue is doing. Well, nobody's reported anything in the last year. That's right. They don't report things for you know, decades down the road, uh, if they report at all. And secondly, the numbers Bill Donahue is using are the bishop's numbers. Right. So, excuse me if I just don't believe them. I, I don't yeah. believe the bishop's numbers. These are the same men who lied, still lie, they lie about God. They lie about the faith. They lie about the teachings of the church. They lie about cover-up against... Uh, uh, they lie in the cover-up. Uh, they attack victims in court. Uh, so really, I'm supposed to give you the benefit of the doubt that the numbers you're throwing out there are actually honest numbers, when I know for a fact that we have spoken to people, victims, male victims of homosexual clergy sex abuse, who say they have called all these 800 numbers and, you know, uh, you know, dial a church, I was raped, 1-800. Uh, 
uh, they don't get callbacks. So I don't, I mean, I don't know how trustworthy are the numbers at this point? But, you know, Bill Donahue can write his book and, you know, it can get promoted all over the place because the USCCB needs a bit of a PR facelift. I don't believe, I don't believe it from the numbers perspective and I don't believe it from the honesty of the bishop's perspective. Yeah, they're, they're, I can count on one hand the number of bishops I trust and even they're cowards. Yeah. So, you know, I, <laughs> A long time ago, Father Ray Ryland was the the late Father Ray Ryland, God rest his soul. He was the uh, chaplain for Catholic Answers. And he told me uh, one time whenever I brought up something from the USCCB before I began to realize how evil things were, he said the USCCB is an abomination before Almighty God. And I didn't respond to that. I didn't know how. It's only been in years since that I've discovered how evil they are. It's it's the biggest criminal empire in the country. It's amazing. I, I gotta I gotta add on to that if I can, Joe, for a second. Sure. The, uh, uh, when we were there, um, I mean, we've been saying for years in. All of our programming here, Vortex, news, story after story, article after article uh, for years, that it certainly appears to be the case uh, because of the bad fruit of the U.S. hierarchy that uh, many of these bishops just don't believe the faith, that they don't have supernatural faith. And it just certainly looks like that. I agree. Well, we had that confirmed for us in uh, uh, Baltimore. You know, you, you hang around the lobbies and, you know, there's hundreds of bishops there and there's all kinds of conversations going on. And let me just say, let me just put it this way so as I don't tip anything off. Uh, a bishop was heard saying to another bishop, uh, stop talking about the deposit of faith. We don't believe there is no deposit of faith. Oh, man. We came back here, we came back here and immediately instituted our prayer, which is now part of our morning and evening prayer we have in our chapel here. Uh, uh, it's our last prayer of each morning and evening. And we say for the purification or the eradication of the USCCB, that body needs to become holy or it needs to be blown up. And I don't mean I, violent. I don't mean violent. I mean, right. you know, come, come to a bureaucratic end. I think it should come to a bureaucratic end, whether it gets cleaned up or not myself. <laughs> but let's get back to the, uh, to the lawsuit against Baltimore. Mm -hmm. First of all, I love the way you made them run off like dogs with tails tucked between their legs. Uh, I followed that whole thing closely. I thought it was great. <laughs> But I'm wondering, you know, I, it's obvious you did not have a friendly relationship with those people. <laughs> oh, so yeah. I was wondering if during the rally there were any incidents between city officials and members of St. Michael's media. Nope, not at all. We invited the uh, city attorney's office. That's the one that, you know, is both prosecuting or trying to prosecute the case against us or defend our charge of, you know, constitutional First Amendment rights violation. Uh, we also invited the uh, leadership of the venue, uh, you know, where we had that big shell tent thing where we had it. That is the uh, Miku Pavilion, 
we invited the company that runs or administers the site for the city. They're the contractors for it. Their name is SMG. Uh, by the way, that's the same company that owned the venue where that horrible event happened down in Houston. Uh, nine or ten people you know, killed. Uh, many, many, many more injured at that rap uh, concert. Same venue owns both. Um, uh, which did raise a little bit of just kind of side conversation with us. Well, I wonder if they, you know, made the, that guy who'd already been twice charged earlier with, you know, inciting violence at a rally, did they actually make him go out and try to get $10 million, maybe up to $25 million worth of insurance? That became a little question in our legal strategy. But anyway, we invited the leaders of that, uh, of that organization, or at least the managers in Baltimore, uh, as well as the city officials said, hey, you guys want to see how dangerous and horrible and life-threatening this all is? Come on in and just sit down and listen. You'll see what it is you've raised this big useless stink for. Yeah, and by the way... They didn't I, come, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think a first-year law student could have won this suit because it's so blatant. However, I think your attorney did a remarkable job. Yeah, Mark, Rand, Mark Randaz, if anybody is out there going through any sort of First Amendment cases, I could not, you know, some need for First Amendment counsel or attorney or filing or whatever. Uh, I, I, I could not recommend somebody more uh, bulldogish uh, th- than him. He was merciless to the city, which he should have been. Uh, so, yeah, it was, I mean, every single per- we had to we had to go shopping around, so to speak, for attorneys, because every First Amendment attorney uh, uh, the, you know, one recommended another to us, another to us, that sort of thing. It's a pretty tight circle. That's, that's a pretty big specialty. I'm sorry, a, a pretty limited but important right. specialty. And uh, we got one recommendation after another. And every single time, we we're like, oh, sorry, we're buried. We have thousands of COVID case uh, First Amendment things from religious groups and employees and companies and just one thing after another. Uh, so we eventually landed on uh, Mark, and uh, it was uh, uh, it, it was providential, big capital P. Uh, he was uh, very dedicated to it, and he's Catholic, and he's um, hanging around us for a few months uh, <laughs> and chatting and stuff. He's like, well, you know, this whole, maybe I should kind of like head back to the faith kind of thing. This seems to have some, you know, value to it beyond just a First Amendment case. Well, <laughs> then it was evangelization too. That's great. Oh, a lot of evangelization going on, yeah. <laughs> That's great. On the bishop side of the rally, I listened to you during the rally quite a bit, and I followed as much of the rally itself as I could. Uh, But you mentioned having overheard things and having discussions with bishops. Give us a little bit more than you already gave us about the bishops. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it wasn't only me. We've got a pretty, uh, how shall I say it, a pretty... um uh, assertive group of young guys here. <laughs> I guess that's probably a polite way to characterize it. And uh, numerous of them would stop bishops in the lobby. I mean, I was doing it too, but I mean, I, I, I didn't cover anywhere near the ground they covered. Uh, they were stopping bishops in the lobby like Bishop Tobin and Bishop O'Malley. Sean, uh, Card- I'm sorry, Cardinal Tobin and Cardinal O'Malley. Uh, uh, Cardinal DiNardo. I mean, it's just like one, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, and I don't want to say confrontation, but I mean, that's sort of what it was, but they, most of them slithered away. Uh, they got to Bishop Sticka. They got to Bishop Boyer. 
Good uh, grief. Yeah. Uh, a real rogues gallery. Yeah, I mean, quite a number of them. And, you know, and, the, and, you know there, there were like one or two type questions, it's sort of you know, big picture questions. It's like, you know, why are you guys doing this whole, you know, Eucharistic coherence document thing? And yet, you know, we already know the Eucharist is the Eucharist. And you going on some $28 million three-year spree trying to evangelize uh, that, uh, you know, you need to stop the sacrilege. Amen. So that was a big thing. It's not just Joe Biden. It's just, you know, because Biden is Catholic with a K, um, is, uh, uh, you know, it's because he's in the White House. And so there's, you know, all eyes are on that issue because of him receiving right. Holy Communion. Uh, but, you know, it's been the case with Nancy Pelosi and John Kerry and Ted Kennedy and Dick Durbin and just on and on and on. I mean, there's this whole rogues gallery of phony fake Catholics. Um, it's just now one's in the White House. So, you know, the, the, that issue gets heightened attention. Uh, so that was one particular line of questioning that was pursued by them. The other line of questioning that was pursued by uh, our uh, crack uh, bulldogs here uh, <laughs> in the lobby uh, was, um, uh, you know, when are you going to end the homosexuality in the church, in the, in the clergy specifically? Uh, in the clergy. You know, and it's interesting, that subject would not be engaged in. Just by anyone? Nope, would not be in. They're like, oh, well, uh, 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 and they you know slink off to the elevator or over to the reception desk or something like that. And uh, uh, I can tell you, one bishop I was speaking with, I asked the same question: When are you going to end the homosexuality? He goes, Well, we're cleaning up the seminaries. <laughs> so we're talking, it's not talking about the seminaries. I'm talking about right now, right now, priests who are out there in those pulpits and who are. You know, they're gay. They, they, either everybody knows it because they've said it or they can figure it out. I mean, it's, tw it's 2021. It's not 1964. You can look at them and know. You can hear what they're saying. You can look at their mannerisms. You can hear their faulty preaching, everything. And uh, so when are you going to do about that? Absolute silence. Wow. I said, how come, I said Bishop, how come, how come you never say anything? You never publish anything. About, this was an archbishop I was speaking with. You never publish anything about James Martin. What, why is that? Cardinal Tobin, Cardinal Supich, they've all signed his book and endorsed him and have him come and speak freely. And he says, James Martin will never speak in my di archdiocese. I said, I, I don't know if you're naive or deflecting, Archbishop, but uh, James Martin speaks in your archdiocese every day. It's called social media. He's there every day. And thousands of your sheep are listening to him, and you say nothing. And he just sat there the whole time. So I just berated him for a few more minutes, and I left. <laughs> Amen. I Listen, I'm just curious, because I've got a vested interest in this. Did you or any of your people speak to Archbishop Rosansky? No. I thought that I know of. I... I, I I don't remember that name being talked about when we all kind of huddled back together. What a shame, because I'd love to see a confrontation with him. I'm oh, not yeah. one of his favorite people in this archdiocese, believe me. Yeah, I would imagine he covered up, <laughs> he covered up for another archbishop who covered up the murder of a boy, uh, you know, back in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. Right. It's disgusting. Yes, he is disgusting. I got one letter from him, four paragraphs. Uh -oh. All except the first paragraph, everything in it was a lie. And he treated me like I was stupid. And he basically said, shut up, sit down, do what I tell you. 
That's it. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we got sort of the same communication here, but we were told we can't use the word Catholic. So, <laughs> yeah. Isn't it horrible that when, so when you think about that for just a second, sort of wax a little bit here, that it, they have so sullied that beautiful name, Catholic, yes. that the bishops, that it's almost a badge of honor to be told you can't use the name. Not horrible. Yeah. What a horrible set of circumstances we're in right now. Yes, it is. You know, I became a Catholic over 30 years ago. And what attracted me to the faith was the beauty. The thing that sold me emotionally was the Eucharist and the real presence. And I look at what's going on, and I hear what these bishops say and do, and what priests say and do. And it's no wonder to me that people are walking out of the church because they have never been introduced to the beauty of this faith. Never. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. I mean, God help these men when they die. This is their sole role is to teach the faith, confirm the brethren in the faith. They oh, teach, no, li- they teach oh. lies and they confirm people in their sin. Well, it's, that's not their job, Michael. Haven't you listened to Cardinal Gregory? It's protecting them. Yeah, that's Idiot. <laughs> and we might let you co-host Vortex if you, if you go a little further the way you're going. <laughs> oh, you, you ought to listen to the show every once in a while. I am merciless. I uh, See, I can say things you probably can't get away with. So. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's switch gears for a moment. Lately, you've had a lot to say about the so-called Catholic media. Tell us right. about that. Well, look, the Catholic media, the, 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 when Catholic media formed roughly 150 years or so ago, uh, you know, you have, for example, you know, the, uh, our Sunday visitor, things like that. They were always, uh, the various outlets were, uh, for the most part, were religious order, uh, you know, uh, communities, religious communities, maybe dioceses that started. And it was really just a way to inform Catholics of certainly things about the faith, but also things they should need to know. I mean, you know, a hundred years, hundred plus years ago, this was a virulent, publicly, openly anti-Catholic nation. Uh, and the media, the, which were largely just sort of newsprints, uh, were circulated among Catholics just to sort of keep them abreast of what's going on and this and that, all the sort of the anti-Catholicism out in the culture, as well as instructional, you know, catechetical type things. As the religious orders began to kind of fall apart, uh, various lay groups sort of stepped into that. A microcosm of that, for example, you could see would be uh, EWTM with Mother Angelica, again, started by a religious, uh, you, know, uh, you know, recognized and responded to the calling to do media work, which teach the faith and all that. Uh, and then the founder or the original purpose starts to become somewhat obscured and the people who have moved in now because there aren't sufficient religious to be able to do this become lay people. Lay people, uh, have, uh, you know, families and husbands or wives and, you know, mortgages and all of this. So now it becomes, there's a much greater emphasis on fundraising. You have to be able to support 
all these salaries where, you know, earlier in the day, it was just the work of the community, like Maximilian Colby with the Immaculatum. That was done by his community. Right. So, you know, it's not like people were there making a million dollars a year, like million dollar bill at Catholic League. Um, so, uh, but, but I repeat myself. Uh, so they're all doing this work and they're, it, it, it's their charism. These orders have this, or maybe it's not their direct charism, but it's an offshoot of it. Great. The religious orders start to fall apart. Communities fall apart. The work continues. It's assumed by people who now have to raise an awful lot more money. And I know that's sitting here as the CEO of St. Michael's Media and Church Militant. It costs a lot of money. We've got, you know, 60-something people out there, right out there. I'm just looking beyond the cameras working for us. These people have to be paid and, you know, and all these things. I mean, that's just the cost of doing business. Right. The difference, however, is that the easy route to go uh, for like uh, our Sunday visitor and EWTN and, you know, a whole host of these uh, relevant radio, all of them uh, was, well, look, if we just don't, if we don't tick off the bishops, they'll let us have fundraising dinners and stick the word Catholic all across our mastheads. And, uh, you know, we can go to their, you know, archdiocesan annual or semi-annual conferences and we can speak and people will come buy our books. And, you know, it just becomes this racket. I call it Catholic Inc., and, uh, and, and that's just how it works. As long as you don't tick off the bishops by talking about them and their evil, you have the gold seal of approval. They don't care what you say. Go ahead and say whatever you want. So whatever weakened version of the faith that many of these places want to present, and they don't all, they don't all do that. It's not the point. But you know, the failure to recognize that the anti-Catholicism that used to exist outside the Catholic Church and needed combating has now engulfed and come into the Church. That's where it now needs combating because it's strangling the beauty and the truth of the faith. It's strangling the message. And if you don't go after the anti-Catholicism inside the Church... You know, James Martin, for example, he's kind of the poster boy of all this stuff, but he's certainly not the only one. Practically the entire Jesuit educational system of 300-plus colleges around the nation, uh, religious order after religious order, the whole gay banners, you know, things, and they all are welcome, and the destruction of the liturgy, every last bit of it, all of it. You can't point to your founders of media outlets and say, oh, look, yay, they're pounding their chest and fighting anti-Catholicism out there. The anti-Catholicism did its job. It permeated into the church and is now sort of the, the dominant influence in the church. And you can't say, oh, I'm a Catholic media outfit and we're fighting for... No, you're not. No, you are not. If you are tied to that institutional body and you make their living off them, you are a parasite on the beast of the destruction Amen. of the faith. Amen. That's absolutely right. And you talk about anti-Catholicism seeping into the church. The most virulent anti-Catholics I know are Catholics. That's correct. Absolutely. Look what those people did on the uh, at the March for Life last weekend. You know, the, the Catholics for Choice, which is right. no such thing. Um, uh, you know, putting their projector images of pro-abortion messaging on the. Uh, you know, on the, on the on the national shrine of the immaculate conception. conception. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> unbelievable, Michael. Whenever I originally scheduled this interview, I asked for an hour. I got a half hour stolen from me. So my question to you: 
Can we schedule another one soon? Because I have barely scratched the surface of the things I wanted to talk about. And your opinions are so valuable to my listeners. They're valuable to me, too. I'd be happy to. We just have a really tight production schedule. I get Uh, that. But, yeah, it's uh, absolutely. You know, I'm always... Always happy to be on be on the show, Joe. So. <laughs> okay, Michael. Listen, we'll get together again soon. I'll I'll call your people. They can call my people, and we got it going on. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Goodbye, Michael. Alrighty. God bless them. God bless all your all your listeners and viewers. Thank you. I promised you in the December 22nd episode of the Cantankerous Catholic that I'd start helping you in a more temporal way with products I believe in. That's what this is all about. I'm talking about Java Burn. I'm ordinarily skeptical of products like Java Burn because of the claims they make. I made an initial order nonetheless. I suppose I'm a sucker for a good video. I'm glad I was, though, because I'm losing weight for the first time since I had a stroke. Now I've purchased a six-month supply. The biggest claim Java Burn made was that I'd begin losing weight just by putting a packet of it in my first cup of coffee in the morning. I thought anything that easy can't be real. I thought wrongly. It works. Java Burn also claims to boost your energy. I haven't noticed that in my case, but maybe it'll work for you. Java Burn doesn't make this claim, but I do. It stands to reason that if you're diabetic and lose weight, you'll get better blood sugar numbers. I'm not saying that's what'll happen for you, but it's sure happening for me. My physical constitution is such that very few drugs or supplements have the desired effect on me. So when an all-natural product like Java Burn works for me, I'm ready to shout it from the rooftops. Try Java Burn or ignore what I say about it. I really don't care. However, I think you know by now that I won't recommend anything I don't believe in. If you're interested, just click on the Java Burn link in my show notes to see the same video I watched. I usually don't like such videos, but I'm glad I watched this one. Watching this video led me to the only way I've been able to lose weight in years. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to the National Catholic Register. Pretender Joe Biden and Vice Pretender Kamala Harris issued a joint statement in support of abortion on the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Biden and Harris called abortion a constitutional right and claimed it is under assault as never before. They added, It is a right we believe should be codified in the law, and we pledge to defend it with every tool we possess. You're wacko! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to the Washington Examiner. Shortly after the March for Life, citizens rallied again in Washington, D.C., 
this time against pretender Joe Biden's vaccine mandates. One rally attendee, a mother of five, said she had pulled her kids out of public school and now homeschools. I'm pretty sure I could do a better job, she said. I won't send my kids to school masked. Private citizens, elected officials, and state governments have sued over the mandates, and courts have also ruled against them. In recent weeks, courts blocked the mandates for private companies with 100 or more employees and the mandate for federal workers, leaving in place only the vaccine mandate for health care workers at institutions that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding. Now that's what I'm talking about. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic, Catholic News Pick number three. Hats off to the Daily Wire. Arizona's Democratic Party on Saturday voted to censure Senator Kristen Cinema for defending the Senate filibuster. State Democratic Party Chair Raquel Turan hedged against criticisms that the party has become intolerant of diversity of opinion among its members. I want to be clear, the Arizona Democratic Party is a diverse coalition with plenty of room for policy disagreements, Turan said in a statement. Cinema recently said of her support for the filibuster, It's a view I have held during my years serving in both the U.S. House and the Senate, and it is the view I continue to hold. I can't believe it! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number number two. two. Hats off to the Daily Wire. Fairfax County Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Stock Braburn on Friday ordered school administrators to suspend students who refused to wear masks in violation of Governor Glenn Youngkin's recent executive order banning mask mandates in schools. Astronomy of Parents Defending Education wrote that the superintendent is setting up a showdown with Governor Yunkin and parents. She added that parents in Fairfax County Public Schools started making phone calls to lawyers to explore filing lawsuits over their children being denied a public education. All right! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick pick number one. Hats off to Fox News. Pretender Biden has been briefed on the possibility of sending 3,000 to 5,000 American troops to Romania and to Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia as part of a broader NATO effort to bolster allies and to warn Russian leader Vladimir Putin not to move into neighboring countries. Holy cow! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. 
This is the final Simon Rafe case file on communion on the tongue. In this short presentation, Simon talks about Bishop Athanasius Snyder being a voice in the wilderness, a modern John the Baptist. He also challenges us to become new prophets defending Christ in the Eucharist. Let's listen. When the angel Gabriel announced to the Blessed Virgin Mary that she was to be the mother of the Messiah, she was told her cousin Elizabeth was already miraculously pregnant. Elizabeth was beyond the age of childbearing, but all things are possible with God. That child who leapt for joy in Elizabeth's womb when the Blessed Virgin, the first tabernacle, visited was John the Baptist. He was prophesied in Isaiah as the voice crying in the wilderness, the prophet of the Most High, who would prepare the way for Christ and make all paths straight for him. Today, Christ has come. He was conceived, was born, lived, died for our sins, and rose again in the flesh. He ascended into heaven, but remained behind in the Eucharist, really, truly, and substantially present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the appearance of bread. But just as he was rejected during his incarnation and ministry, so too is he rejected today by many people, including Catholics who should know better. Today, Christ needs prophets to go before him and proclaim that he has come just as much as he did when he walked in Galilee. One of these modern-day prophets is Bishop Athanasius Schneider of Kazakhstan, the author of Dominus Est, It is the Lord. This short book, really, it's not long, is a powerful call to return to the ancient, traditional, and, most importantly, reverential reception of Holy Communion kneeling and on the tongue. It calls for a rejection of the modern and dangerous practice of reception standing and in the hand. Why is communion in the hand dangerous? Well, think about who John the Baptist cried out people to prepare the way for. It was God in the flesh, the creator and redeemer of the universe. That is who the Eucharist is. The Eucharist is not a what, it is a person, and that person is the second person of the Holy Trinity. That little white host has divine glory and power. To receive communion in the hand is to receive it as we would ordinary food, which it absolutely is not. To receive it like we might ordinary bread teaches us and others who see us receive it, it is ordinary bread. Faith in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, and the popes have warned about this, is diminished if we receive the Eucharist in the hand or standing. But when we kneel before God, when we receive him reverently on the tongue, not touching the blessed sacraments with our hands, but rather reserving that awesome privilege to the anointed hands of his sacred ministers, we teach ourselves and those who see us that there is something special and sacred about what looks like bread. Bishop Schneider is not the only man promoting communion on the tongue, but he is perhaps the most significant, and we can learn the most from him. Not merely because he has written this excellent book, but also because he is truly a voice crying in the wilderness, whose life story reveals just how precious the Eucharist is. His devotion to the Eucharist comes from a place of privation and suffering, a place where Christ was pushed from the public square, and suppression and persecution was the order of the day. Bishop Schneider is the auxiliary bishop of the Diocese of Astana in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is a country in Central Asia and is truly a wilderness, a desert. Not in the sense of geography. The country is huge, larger than Western Europe, and has many different kinds of landscape. Nor is it, as many of us in the West might imagine, a poverty-stricken or economically backward nation. In fact, it's economically powerful. It accounts for 60% of gross domestic product for Central Asia. So how can it be said to be a wilderness? Well, Kazakhstan is a former Russian satellite nation, first dominated by the Russians, and then, when the communists came to power, a Soviet republic suffering under the yoke of the USSR. Then, of course, religion of any kind was suppressed and persecuted with Catholicism as the one true faith, hated most of all 
by the atheistic communists. When the Iron Curtain fell and communism collapsed, religion enjoyed a resurgence, but not authentic religion. The majority of Kazakhs are Muslim, opposed to Christianity, and of the Christians, most are Russian Orthodox. Today, while Catholics are not actively persecuted, they are a small minority and, in the main, ethnically German or Slavic. Which is, as it happens, just what Bishop Schneider is. His parents were Black Sea Germans, ethnic Germans, living in the Ukraine after the Second World War, filled with hatred for the Germans and pushing a strongly pro-Russian policy, Stalin deported the Black Sea Germans to the Ural Mountains, where they languished in gulags, forced labor camps run by the communists. When his parents were released from the camps, they traveled to Kyrgyzstan, another Central Asian nation to the south of Kazakhstan. Young Anton, as he was then known, received his first Holy Communion in 1973 at the age of 12 and shortly afterwards left with his family for Germany. There he joined the Canons Regular of the Holy Cross and took the religious name Athanasius. He was ordained a priest in 1990 and had returned to Central Asia, this time Kazakhstan in 1999, where he taught at the seminary. He was consecrated bishop in 2006 and was assigned to the See of Astana in 2011. In Dominus Est, Bishop Schneider recounts just how he gained his deep respect for the Eucharist. It was due to the example given him by his mother, his grandfather's sister, and a fellow parishioner. These Eucharistic women lived during the communist regime in the Soviet Union, where Catholicism was not merely suppressed, but actively forbidden. Remember, his parents spent time in the gulags. The young man who would become this modern-day John the Baptist knew very well what real persecution was like. Because of the oppression of the Soviet regime, these three women rarely received the sacraments. The Catholic Church was forced to go underground during their lifetime. The sacrifice and hardship they made to receive the Eucharist resulted in it being all the more precious to them. But they did not let this persecution dampen their faith. On the contrary, it strengthened it. And through them, the faith of Anton, later Athanasius. They held prayer meetings, made spiritual communions when there was no sacrament available, which was most of the time. And when an underground priest was able to leave them, with the Holy Eucharist for adoration, they treated our Lord with the greatest of reverence. And so this is why we concentrate so much on Bishop Schneider, not merely because he's the author of this wonderful little book, which explains so simply and clearly the need for communion on the tongue, but also because his life story reveals an essential truth we, in the pampered, luxurious West, have forgotten. We have our freedom of religion, our freedom to believe whatever we wish. Most often, the worst persecution we face is a joke on late-night television, or the mockery of our co-workers. Yes, it's true, there are dark clouds of genuine persecution gathering on the horizon, and there are Catholics who have suffered because of their faith, but that's been losing jobs, not being imprisoned. Even as the liberal juggernaut rolls up to speed and the reality of incarceration for refusing to accept the anti-Catholic agenda looms, we must admit we are unlikely to be sent to Stalinist gulags to be worked to death. And yet, despite the fact we can worship in safety, we live in a wilderness, devoid of love for our Eucharistic Lord, while those behind the Iron Curtain lived in a garden, fragrant with the fruit of devotion to the real presence of Jesus Christ. If we cannot manage to love Jesus, to receive him reverently, to frequently visit him in adoration, to run eagerly to him whenever we have the chance, in situations where it's easy to do so, what hope do we have if the situation sours? Because, of course, eventually the full horror of anti-Catholic persecution will come to the West, 
and the lessons of men like Bishop Schneider, men who have lived in the shadow of atheistic communism and lived in a country now dominated by non-Christians whose family suffered not only persecution but denial of the sacraments. We must take those lessons to heart. We must look at his experience and see how it has not harmed his faith, but rather strengthened it, turning him into a champion for reverential love for the Eucharist. We must be ready for persecution, for it will come, and when it does, we must be sure to learn the right lesson from it. As I said, there are many men promoting a return to communion on the tongue. My team and I are some of them, of course, and you can be too. We hope that you will, that you will use the resources we have made available to you to fight against the abuse of communion in the hand. This is a war, and it is a war, a war which agents of darkness have waged against Jesus Christ since the days he walked in Galilee, since the Arian crisis of the 4th century, since the Protestant revolt and the English defamation, even up to the monstrous rebellion against Paul VI in the mid-20th century and the horrors of too many of today's masses. This war needs warriors. The church needs warriors. Christ needs modern day prophets to cry in the wilderness to make straight his paths. Remember the words of Zechariah, you little child shall be called a prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to bring people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. That is my favorite passage of scripture because it's not just about John the Baptist. It is about all of us. It is the mission all of us are called to and nowhere more than when it comes to reception of the Eucharist. We are all prophets of the Most High and we will prepare the way for the Lord. Even when we reject him, when we malign him, when we don't have time for him, we will still prepare his way. It's just that we will prepare it to be rough and filled with thickets and thorns. The Eucharist is a great mystery. It is God, the creator and redeemer of the universe, not only made incarnate in flesh, which is a mystery all of its own, but also with that divine flesh veiled under the appearance of bread and wine. When we look at the Eucharist, the incarnate Jesus is not present to our senses. We must take that on faith. And when those who walked with Jesus saw him, except for the most precious moments when the veil was drawn back, they did not see his divinity. They too took it on faith. The divine Lord in the Eucharist is veiled twice, and so that is why it is so important that when we are prophets of the Most High, we must prepare his way into the hearts of others. We must act in a manner which not only shows him due reverence, but also communicates to others that the Eucharist is not merely bread, that it is a person, and that person is not merely a wise or clever man, but God himself, the creator of the universe and redeemer of man. Often we cannot easily express this great mystery, the awesome reality of the real presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Our tongues tangle, and we cannot find the words. But while we might not be able to use our tongues to speak, we can use them to act. And as I have said, acta non verba, deeds, not words. Let us use our tongues to receive Christ, and in so doing, let our actions speak more eloquently than our words ever could. Let our reverential reception of the Eucharist on the tongue, as faithful Catholics have done for centuries, and which the Church and Popes have perennially said is the preferred method, be our silent witness, a profound amen to the reality of the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Let us be prophets of the Most High, going before the Lord to prepare his way into the hearts of those whose faith is weak, bringing them the knowledge of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist. Something special I'm trying to do for you is build a membership area on my website. That area will have loads of video and audio courses you can take at your convenience. There's just one problem, and someone listening can help me out with that problem. I had to purchase a high-end software to develop the members area. 
But now that I reach an estimated 300,000 souls each week, host weekly webinars, write for three Catholic media platforms, produce weekly bulletin inserts, and other things, I simply don't have the time to learn this new software. If anyone listening is tech-savvy or has worked with Lifter LMS, and if you're willing to donate your time to help, I really need you to build out this membership area for me. If you can help, just reach out to me at joeatcantankerouscatholic.com. It's in my show notes. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Thomas Aquinas. He said, Grant me, O Lord my God, a mind to know you, a heart to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing you. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. In freezing, wintry weather, a daring rider once lost his way on snow-covered fields. No light was to be seen, no house, no living creature. After riding for hours, he finally came upon a small hut. Wearily, he asked the owner, Where is Lake Constance? Is it far from here? Where have you come from? the man asked. From that direction, answered the rider while pointing behind himself. Then you rode across the entire lake. The rider turned white. It flashed into his mind that he'd been wandering for hours in danger of his life, realizing how the depths of the lake could have swallowed both he and his horse. His heart turned weak, and he fell lifeless from his horse. Most people thoughtlessly wander for years above the depths of sin and hell and don't know what danger they're in. They don't believe until they hear the verdict of God about their future and eternity, but then it's too late. People usually take good care of their bodies, but often neglect the health of their souls by refusing to receive the sacrament of penance frequently, if ever. They hurt their souls more than they could ever hurt their bodies. This is spiritual murder, a sin against the fifth commandment. When did you last go to confession? The China virus lockdown suspended mass across the country. When restrictions were lifted, few Catholics returned to mass. Why? Because no matter how you slice it, American Catholics simply don't know our faith. In two different EWTN surveys of Catholics conducted in November of 2019 and February of 2020 respectively, 86% said that their religion is very important to them. Yet 82% reject at least one Catholic doctrine, 41% never go to confession, 61% don't attend Mass regularly, 70% don't believe in the real presence, 84% believe abortion should be illegal, and 55% agree with euthanasia. Clearly, American Catholics are completely or almost completely ignorant of the Catholic faith. If they weren't, these figures wouldn't be so dismal. Despite their lack of knowledge, it's nearly impossible to interest them in catechesis they need so desperately. 
Well, I've got a remedy for that. Introducing the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts, which are endorsed by Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke. Everyone reads the Sunday Bulletin, and these bulletin inserts provide a thumbnail catechism lesson that is anything but typically boring catechism. They not only tell readers what the church believes, but why the church believes it. In the parishes where these bulletin inserts are already being used, parishioners love them. I know because I get emails every week telling me so. If you're a parish priest, you can get three months of what we believe, why we believe it, to try it out for free. Some laity get subscriptions for their parishes as well. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Insert. It just requires 11 minutes of your time to see the video. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.